You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Good morning. Welcome to Hub City. I'm Jesse, and I'm one of the leaders here. And I'm sure you can tell just by looking at my overly tan and relaxed face (laughs) that I got to spend a couple days in Florida last weekend. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, that's a joke. I'm not tan, just in case you think I'm translucent on a regular basis. I got to get away for a couple days and look at plants and some alligators and new animals, and that was a very relaxing, fun weekend for me. And I got the novel first-time experience of live streaming a Hub City service, which was fun, although it threw me off a lot to have a three-hour time difference. My brain was really having a hard time reconciling that. But I got to watch it live stream, and I sort of missed you a little bit. Not really at all. The last couple of weeks, Matt has been setting up this conversation between faith and works and our justification, which means salvation, that comes through faith in Jesus as the Savior and not by anything we do on our own. Verses 15 through 18 talk about how even humans and all their frailty can keep contracts and covenants with each other. So then how much better is God that we can expect him to do even better what we cannot? So far, uh, in the first three chapters of Galatians, Paul has laid just this really fantastic foundation to the idea that Jesus died for our sins to save us, and that we can't do anything on our own to save ourselves. And it is only by our faith in God's grace that we are saved. And then we get to verse 19, and Paul asks this really great question of, why then do we have the law? Why did God give his people the Ten Commandments and this huge set of rules and traditions for them to follow if it was always going to be about grace. So today we're going to look at that question and also look at some of the background information for why that is. Before we get too deep into that, let's just take a minute and pray together before we delve deep into Old Testament, which I love. Father God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the sunshine. Thank you for the people who are here ready with open hearts and open minds uh, to hear what you have to say. And I just pray that everybody leaves this room today just feeling your grace, feeling how big you are, and feeling a freedom that comes only through you. Amen. Okay, so in the Old Testament, God made multiple covenants or promises with his people. The first one was with Adam and Eve after Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit and then forced a separation between them and God. And God's response to that sin and separation was to cover their nakedness and promise them that he would save them still, that he would be faithful to them, and that he would save someone born of a woman to crush the head of evil. Later, God made a promise to Abraham 
It was technically Abram at the time, if you're an Old Testament scholar, but we're just going to say Abraham for simplicity's sake. And this promise is made in uh, Genesis 15, and it is bloody and weird and one of my all-time favorite passages in Scripture. And in this, God promises Abraham that his reward shall be great and that God himself will take care of Abraham and all of his descendants, which will be as numerous as the stars, which is a pretty big deal at the time because Abraham didn't have children. And this promise right here is the foundation of God's people. It's a promise that God will multiply and then care for his people. This promise is followed up with this Genesis 15 super weird covenant ritual where Abraham cuts up a bunch of animals and then he lays them on a path, the two halves. And the point of this covenant was to be a visual reminder that when two people are making this promise to each other, if one of them does not uphold the promise, then whoever doesn't uphold it will resemble the body parts of these animals who have been cut up. So woe to you if you break this covenant. It's a very visual reminder. <clears throat> the beautiful part of this is that at the time when the two of them are to be walking through this covenant, God actually puts Abraham to sleep, and so God walks through this path. This signifies that God upholds the full weight of upholding the promise, but also that God himself will be like that broken lamb that is torn apart and is going to suffer the consequences, even though we know he's the only one that does uphold the covenant. Wow, right? <laughs> that right there is amazing. Like, I could just stop right there. Despite Abraham having many human moments throughout his life, this covenant or promise that God made with his people is important because every single step of this is upheld through God, not through Abraham. Not only does God fulfill both sides of the covenant, as seen in chapter 15, but Abraham is 100 by the time he has his first kid, so clearly he's not responsible for he can't take any credit for having children at that point to pass this covenant onto. God proves to Abraham and to his descendants that he will remain faithful to them and will protect them and provide for them even when they continue to fail miserably. So after Abraham, God's people live peacefully for a while until they end up in Egypt where they become enslaved. And here we get the Mosaic Covenant. God saved his people from slavery, and after watching them forget themselves and forget him and forget who they are and their place in God's kingdom, God rescues them and then gives them this set of rules and laws for them to follow, these Ten Commandments. And they're a set of guidelines to help them remember who they are. It's a way for them to be set apart from all the cultures around them and to create an identity as God's people. So God continued to stay faithful to his people when they continued to forget him. In Jeremiah, which is towards the end of the Old Testament, the uh, prophet, they hit a really low point in their history. 
They had forgotten him almost completely. They're worshiping other gods. It's not a great place for God's people right there. They have forgotten him. They're not following their rules. Their lack of faithfulness is heartbreaking. But despite all of this, despite their faithfulness, their lack of faithfulness, their lack of remembering, despite they're not holding up even a small part of this covenant, God tells them through Jeremiah in 30, Jeremiah 31, I will make a new covenant with them. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. God, Jeremiah 31. <laughs> God promises a new covenant, one that does not negate the previous covenants, but that is the fulfillment of every promise he's made with them so far. This promise recognizes that even though they broke their end of the deal, and as a result, Jesus's body will be broken. But because of that, he will get to dwell with us forever. He will not only forget our lack of faithfulness, but he will forgive it. He will forgive it and forget it. So this is the legacy that all of God's people have leading up to Jesus's birth. We know that Paul is an expert in these laws in the Old Testament and knows all of this stuff about the history of the Jewish people. And he, we know that he's speaking to the churches in Galatia who also have a background in knowing Jewish history and culture. So these are all stories that the people of Galatia would also be familiar with. God made all sorts of promises to his people. They weren't faithful to him. He remembered them. And the point of all of these promises was always to point to Jesus. So these previous sections of Galatians were essentially setting up this debate between faith and works. Abraham and the promise of God made to him is a symbol of faithfulness, while Moses received the Ten Commandments and the Levitical law, and he became the symbol for works. And here we have this early church struggling with what, how to reconcile those two things and what to do and how to live rightly. They have 430 years of tradition and celebrations and laws and upholding all of what this means to have their identity rooted in these things that they do. And then understandably, they're suddenly told that they don't need to do any of those things and they can just surrender that. So here's Paul trying to explain to them how, how to do that and why. In verse 19, he asks, why then the law? And so this is his question and then his answer. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. 
Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith could be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So my English majorness needs to look up some words in that dictionary. Um, so the word transgression, what does that mean? That's a word we hear all the time, so I looked it up. Transgression, the act of passing over or beyond any law or rule of moral duty, the violation of a law or known principle of rectitude, reach, or command. And just in case you don't know what rectitude means off of the top of your head, I looked that up too. Rectitude, in morality, rightness of principle or practice, uprightness of mind, exact conformity to truth, or to the rules prescribed for moral conduct, either by divine or human laws. The law was added because God's offspring would pass over or move beyond any law, because they would continually violate a law and fail to uphold and conform to the truth because they would constantly breach the commands that were given. Seems a little backwards, I know. But God created these laws because he wanted them to see how to live rightly, but also to show them that the only way to accomplish that was not through what they could do on their own efforts, but what he could do for them through faith in Christ Jesus. The Old Testament is full of God's people who, even after the law was given, failed over and over. They didn't obey the laws that God gave them. They murdered, they committed adultery, they f forgot him as like the biggest one. And the Bible doesn't even mention all the people who didn't wash their hands after they peed. <laughs> I'm sure there were a lot of them. The Bible does not sugarcoat human frailty. And we see here that Paul is telling the Galatians why the Bible does not sugarcoat human frailty. It's because they were never the heroes of the story. The point was never to look up to these men and want to be like them. If you ever look at Abraham and think, if I could only be like him when I grow up, that would mean that you'd be willing to pimp out your wife to save your own life, to sleep with your servant, to abandon your child to the desert, to forget the words that God spoke directly to you. And this is Abraham, who in multiple times throughout scripture, God has listed as one of the faithful. Look at any person in the Old Testament. They're full of failures because God is the hero, not them. God gave Moses the laws because he knew we would fail on our own power, and he wanted us to realize our need for the true hero. At the end of Deuteronomy, Moses is giving the law to Joshua, and this is what he says. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are, Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? For I know that after my death, you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. 
And in the days to come, evil will befall you, because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. God knew his people would fail at upholding the law. Moses knew that they would fail. Does this seem harsh? Like God is setting his people up for failure? I am a mom of four kids and I have a degree in child development. And clearly I have spent a lot of my adult life working with children. So sorry, not sorry that most of my illustrations will always be toddler related. <laughs> when I think of Paul describing the purpose of the law here, I think of a toddler trying to dress themselves. It is by far one of the most frustrating experiences that a parent can ever live through. There is clearly a right way and a wrong way to get dressed. There are tags to indicate rules. There are holes where they should be. There are guidelines. There's can't stick your head through pants. You know, like, it's pretty obvious, but toddlers need to do it all by themselves. And we, as parents, just get to sit back and watch and let them fail because we know that's gonna be the only way they learn. And hopefully they'll get to the point where they can come to us and say, help, I can't do this on my own. I need you to help me. This Mosaic covenant is the law given to God's people to provide the safeguards. But the point was always to show them like the foolish toddlers that we are, that they need help that they aren't going to get very far on their own abilities. And as we saw last week, the promise of God's love and provision was given before the law. God's covenants build on each other, slowly revealing a little bit more of what God's plan was from the very beginning, to save and to free all the people who couldn't save themselves, no matter how hard they tried, which by the way is everyone. When you follow the law, you have to follow all of it. You can't just pick and choose the parts that are easiest or convenient. This is why Paul calls it a curse. God used this curse of following the law to, how, to point out how much we needed faith. Doing will fail you every single time. But luckily, it was never the end goal. It was the guardian the protection we needed to see how we couldn't do it on our own. Let's look again at verses 23 through 26. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So I looked up guardian in the dictionary. It means one who guards, preserves, or secures. Two times in that passage, Paul uses the word guardian. And coupled with the word imprisoned, it creates a little bit of a bleak picture. We have a general idea of what it means to be imprisoned, right? Behind bars, slaves, no coffee. It's not pleasant. <laughs> While this picture might seem bleak, it's actually really good news. God uses the law 
to protect and secure us, to guard, secure, and protect his people. It served an important purpose in the history of God's people, but it was never the entirety of God's promise. And then Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Just like that new covenant in Jeremiah 31, the law will be written on our hearts because Jesus is the only one who can uphold the law, the only perfect lamb who can be perfect in his fulfillment in the law. And instead of imprisoning with us with it, he frees us. And he's the one who is broken. He's the one that upholds the entire covenant and then is broken when we can't. In our, we inherited our covenant from Father Abraham in Genesis 15. We should be the ones who are broken, but Jesus took on the whole weight of that covenant. He upheld every promise and took every consequence that we deserve to carry. At first glance, God's people look a little bit crazy for holding so tightly to the law. If you were given two choices, somebody said, okay, there's this huge book of rules, you have to follow every single one, and if you don't follow every single one of these rules, then there will be consequences for you. Or they said, okay, so there's this whole book of rules, but you don't need to follow any of them because that guy over there is going to follow all of them for you, and if he, if you fail at all, then he's going to take all the consequences of your failing. When you're presented that way, like, this one's a no-brainer, right? Let that guy take everything. And yet, how hard do we work to keep running back into that prison? Take a minute and think about who is writing this. Paul. Paul was so good at following the rules. He started the book of Galatians with telling us his background. He gets how hard it is to surrender. He gets how easy it is to follow all the rules. Faith should be easier, but it's actually not. It requires surrender and gray and openness. And we're so afraid of that, that we keep trying to put ourselves into these safe little boxes and Paul is telling us that those safe boxes are actually prisons. What are your prisons that you keep putting yourself in? What parts of your life are you doing so well and so right that it's actually stifling you instead of giving you life? When you think of giving up certain aspects of your life, does, can you feel like a little bit panicky, like your heart rate is pounding and your palms are getting sweaty and you're breathing harder? These things might actually be things that are causing, that are like little prisons for you instead of giving you life. Things that are enslaving you when what God wants for you is freedom. In fact, he wants you to have freedom so badly that he died because you couldn't uphold the law. You couldn't give yourself freedom, so he did that for you. Are those things you're holding on to actually protecting you or preserving you the way you think they will? 
If you are feeling any of those chains right now, then just take a minute and breathe deep because it doesn't matter how thick your walls are or how heavy your chains are because God is stronger and better than any wall or chain you bind yourself with and he loves you enough to break them. So take a deep breath and just let that knowledge sink in for a minute and know that there are always people who are willing to pray through that with you. But we are going to skip ahead a bit to chapter 4, where Paul uses this word guardian again. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So, spoiler alert, guardian actually has two definitions. I only told you one of them, but there's a second one. So one, who, one who guards, preserves, or secures, and two, in law, one who is chosen or appointed to take charge for a minor or of any person who is not of sufficient discretion to manage his own concerns. So the way Paul uses guardian in this verse, in these verses, is a little bit different. Paul is saying that when we're children, we're all like slaves. My kids think so anyway. (laughs) Even those who are heirs to a great fortune are slaves because they are under a guardian, like our definition here of number two. Even the heirs are under the authority of someone who has been put in charge for their protection until they are of an age where they can make good decisions on their own. And here Paul is saying the time has come. We are old enough. We are of an age. We don't need to be enslaved by the law anymore. We don't need the guardianship or the protection of the law to manage our accounts for us because we're old enough. The time has come. Now we get to claim our inheritance and live a life of independence in the faith and knowledge that Jesus saves us and we get to believe in him. The law was the guardian to keep us safe and protected until the time we are old enough, and now we are. The purpose has been fulfilled through the death and resurrection of Jesus, and that's why it said he came to fulfill the law. And that is how we are saved, not by our own works, but by stepping through the prison door that Jesus opened for you and believing that he is good enough, that he is big enough, that he is strong enough, and that he loves you enough to have freed you. And this truth applies to all of us. We are all heirs. In ancient Jewish culture, a thing called primogeniture existed, which meant that firstborn sons received the full inheritance of everything his father owned. So if you were not the firstborn son, your future was not quite as secure. This clearly eliminates a large part of the population. In fact, raise your hand if you are a firstborn son. So look around. Everyone else, not doing so great. (laughs) You would be a firstborn son, Jack. Even though you're the fourth kid, you are still the firstborn son. But God turned this, you too, Henry. God turned this custom on on its head. 
In Galatians 3, 26 through 29, it says, For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise, the promise made to keep and protect his people. We are heirs to the kingdom of God that Abraham was promised because we are all firstborn sons of Abraham, firstborn sons of the king of the world. I skipped around a little bit for theme's sake, but after this passage is where we have Paul's words about guardians protecting us until we're ready. And then in verse four, we have these words. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. A couple of things to notice in this passage. Abba is a very familiar term. It's the equivalent of daddy. And it's also what Jesus called God while he was dying on the cross. So you now, as full inherited sons, get to use the same word that Jesus used for the father, Abba. Another thing in this to notice, in Tim Keller's book, Galatians for You, he points out that some translations of this passage say children of God, you are all children of God and not sons of God. And he says that in reality, this actually dilutes this passage a little bit because because of that primogeniture, sons of God, firstborn sons of God held a special place in that culture. So by saying that we are all sons of God, even us lowly females, like this is scandalous. And it doesn't, he's not just saying women, he's also saying slaves and Greeks are full inherited members of the kingdom. Like cue collective gasp there, that's, that's huge. There is no Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free, no male or female, because we are all Christ's. And English major moment again, do you see that apostrophe S there, that possessive S? We are all Christ's. We belong to Christ and therefore are covered in the covenantal promise of Abraham. And that was always the plan. Galatians 3, 8 through 9 says, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles through faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. God's plan from the book of Genesis was for the Gentiles to also be saved by faith not by their circumcision or their ability to eat kosher or how well they washed their hands after they peed. It was always by faith that we would be saved. And there's further good news in these statements. What God wants for us is unity. 
We see through other passages in scripture that we have different roles and different giftings, and God does not want us to be a uniformed group of robots that are all the same. What he offers is unity, not sameness. He made us all equally loved, equally cherished, and equally blessed with the inheritance of a kingdom. So let's relook at four, four through seven as rewritten by me. God sent his son, born fully human and fully God, to save those who were under the protection of the law until we were ready to receive the full adoption of the firstborn son. And because we have that place in the family dynamics, we have the spirit of God dwelling in our very being. We get to cry out to the creator of the universe in the most familiar of terms. We get to call him daddy because we are fully accepted and given full rights as firstborn sons of the kingdom of God. Do you feel that good news there? Just sit in that for a minute and just let it seep deep into your soul. A couple of weeks ago, the staff went away for the weekend and we prayed together and read scripture together. And one of the things we did was a values test. And I realized through that, that belonging is one of my top five deepest values. I am deeply motivated by making other people feel like they have a place, like they belong. And I want the same thing in return, to feel wanted and accepted and valued. And after realizing that, this passage hit me in such a different way because I felt that belonging in here. And I want you to hear it too. You belong. You are a child of the king of the entire universe who commands the stars and the water and time itself. And as a child of the king, you have given, been given the full inherited rights and privileges of the firstborn son of the king. And it doesn't matter what your place here on earth is because your place in the kingdom is so much more important and it's so much more secure. And what do you have to do to earn that place? Nothing. Tim Keller says, our inheritance is not a prize to be won or earned, it's a gift. Do you see Jesus with his outstretched hands, open palmed, with the holes of his suffering plain to see, waiting patiently for you to put your hands in his and have faith that he can take care of you? So come to the table this morning with your palms open and ready to receive what he is freely giving. Receive the bread and the juice as a reminder of those holes in his palms that he willingly suffered so that you didn't have to. Receive the blessing of worship and community and love and the belonging that you have here because he gave us that gift. And finally, Give this morning because he gave to us. Give your heart of praise. Give your voice to worship. Give your love and acceptance to the community of heirs around you. And give your resources of time and money to serve your community of brothers and sisters because of the resources you have been given. 
I'm going to close this out today with reading Psalm 145. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. <coughs> the Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power, to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generation. The Lord is faithful in all his works and kind in all of his words. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of everything. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth.